0: Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com.
1: I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Humor is a powerful source of energy. It can change the tone of a small room, and bring unlikely people together in laughter. Legendary comedian Richard Pryor once said, quote, two things people throughout history have had in common are hatred and humor. And I'm proud that I've been able to use humor to lessen people's hatred, end quote. Yes, humor, humor can bring us together in magical ways. Later this hour, we'll endeavor to do that for you all. We've invited a few local comedians to learn more about the local scene, and of course, have a good laugh. But first, there is a disturbing trend happening in Nashville. People are using anonymous code complaints to go after their neighbors. Maybe it's an unmowed yard or a refrigerator in the garage. Neither sound like a big deal, but the complaints registered against them can have pretty big consequences, especially for those low-income residents and people of color. Here to explain is Radley Balco, opinion journalist for The Washington Post. Radley, welcome to This Is Nashville.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: Pleasure to have you, my friend. So your piece came out yesterday. It's the cover story of the Nashville scene. Tell us, how did you come across this story?
2: Well, we had our own battle with codes. Um, The the house that we moved into about seven years ago uh, has a slope, a a very steep slope on one side of the property. Uh, We were battling a lot of erosion and uh, we couldn't find any landscapers that would sort of Landscape the slope for anything under than the quotes we got were 35, dollars 40000 which of course, you know, a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, it was all contained within the property. We have a, a six foot privacy fence. So you couldn't see the growth from anywhere, any public space. So we just kind of let it go um, in order to stop the erosion and the neighbor, and, and that wasn't a problem until a few years ago when some townhouses went in behind us and and one neighbor was able to see into the yard. And began calling complaints uh, into codes about the vegetation and you know from our viewpoint it was it, my, my interactions with codes it was just they were so um everything was just sort of black and white it was like you have weeds longer than 12 inches therefore you're in violation and if you don't remove all of them we're going to charge you 50 dollars per day uh, in one case they said they threatened 50 dollars per day per weed wow um, and Yeah, and, you know, we told them about what landscapers had told us, that nothing would grow on the slope, that, um, you know, also that we we couldn't find uh, lawn maintenance. People didn't want to go up on the slope because it was too steep and dangerous. Uh, And none of that mattered. And we ended up having to pay about $5,000 to have all the the weeds removed. Uh, And then since then, you know, we have spent several thousand dollars more on landscaping. And the irony for our story, as I pointed out in the article, is that it ended up, the erosion that happened, which we predicted, uh, had two effects. One, it caused flooding onto the same neighbor who who we thought on the property of the same neighbor who we think reported this in the first place, and it, it exposed the roots of a tall elm tree that we may have to take down now because it poses a threat, hmm. uh, an actual threat as opposed to weeds. And you know, my as I, my wife and I, you know, aren't going to go bankrupt. We're not going to be forced to sell our house. But it did put a dent in our savings, and it was it was you know. A source of stress, and, and was pretty uh, uh, we were pretty angry about it. Uh, but I also had have written about these issues enough to know that we probably aren't the people who are normally targeted with these kinds of actions from the city and and neighbor uh, complaints from neighbors. And you know, we had the advantage of being able to afford you know to come into compliance. And I suspected most people didn't, based on previous reporting in other cities. So I started looking into it here in Nashville and, and you know, all my hunches were confirmed that the vast majority of the people who are targeted with codes complaints are tend to be low income people in who sort of are holdouts in trendy neighborhoods uh, and, you know, they're disproportionately black, they're disproportionately low income and they tend to be uh, codes complaints tend to be called by kind of wealthy, wealthier neighbors who have recently moved in around them. In your piece, Code Snitching for the Nashville Scene, you highlight
1: the story of Freddie Benford, who lives in East Nashville. Benford says that Metro Code's inspectors visited his house over 50 times. That's a lot of visits. How has this affected him?
2: So, um, you know, uh, Mr. Benford, yeah, he lives in the Rosebank neighborhood. And, um, you know, they're the only black couple in the neighborhood. And they, you know, they're, they're low income people. Uh, They have, he has an old car that he got from his dad that he, uh, you know, tries to keep up and, and works on sometimes and working on your car on your own property is a violation of codes, unless it's in an enclosed garage, which they don't have and and can't afford to build. Um, You know, he also has a carport with some tools and uh, a refrigerator and, uh, you know, some he stores some things out there and that's mm-hmm. apparently a violation of the open storage laws uh, in code. So he's been cited for all of that. Um, and then, you know, he, he works on cars. He works on his own cars. Um, you know, he probably has over the years worked on cars from other people, which again is a violation of codes, but, you know, he likes to tinker. Um, and I guess you know technically, everything I've described to you is a violation of code. some of the codes are written so vaguely that you know you could find just about anything on any property to be a violation. In fact, some city officials admitted that to me. Um, but you know the question is, what why are we, you know is is quality of life really contingent on stopping Freddie Benford from working on a car in his driveway? Uh, You know, is that really affecting the quality of his life of his neighbors so much that we're going to put a lien on his house, which the city has done, Mm. threaten jail time, which the city has done? Um, You know, I think uh, on some level, you know, the question, these questions are about sort of what kind of city we want to be and, and who has a stake in how the city grows and develops.
1: Now, the method of complaints is an anonymous system. What is the reasoning behind having an anonymous reporting system?
2: Yeah, I, I think the intentions behind the anonymous-driven, anonymous, anonymous complaint-driven system are, are, you know, understandable. And that is that, you know, when you're calling a complaint, say against a um, absentee landowner or landlord, or you know, there's a vacant lot next to you, or there's developers who are dumping, you know, water into your yard or waste into your yard. The idea is that you should be able to complain anonymously because a lot of people, you know, may not want to. Uh, complaining under their own names they and may, they may fear retaliation, um, particularly if it's a landlord situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's a perfectly understandable reason for anonymous complaints. The problem is that those very people that the anonymous system claimed to be protecting are the people that it it, it ends up victimizing or it ends up targeting. Um, what we found is you know, I had a, an economist actually look at the data on who gets hit with codes code complaints in Nashville. And overwhelmingly, um, you know, as I said before, it's People in low-income houses that are in gentrifying neighborhoods, um, you know, these are the very people that, that you want to protect by having this system, and yet it ends up being, you know, on the ground as it plays out, those end up being the people targeted. So tell me, how does this process work? Like, what happens after
1: a complaint is filed?
2: So usually what happens a neighbor files a complaint the codes office sends an inspector to your property um if they find a violation they'll issue what's called an abatement notice uh and then you have you know so many days to to take care of the of the problem um if you don't they'll then issue the city will issue a a warrant to appear in environmental court Uh, i got a warrant for for our property and I can tell you, it's a little disconcerting. A deputy comes to your house, a sheriff's deputy comes to your house, and serves you with the warrant. The warrant says, in in capital bold letters, that failure to appear can result in additional fines and uh, jail time hmm. uh, for you know what are basically you know offenses like tall grass and and peeling paint. Um, you know now you have to take off work and go to environmental court, or you might go to jail. Um, and that's a the, the the court, as as it turns out, straddles this kind of line between civil and criminal. It it, it has all the aspects of a civil court in that it doesn't have to afford you basic sort of due process rights that you would get if you were charged with with actual crimes, but it does have the ability to impose punitive punishment like jail time and fines and putting a lien on your house. Uh, and in fact, I um, I yet to see of a case in Nashville where somebody actually lost their house, but there are cases in Memphis uh, which also has an environmental court. Uh, where people, you know, who were who basically couldn't afford repairs after a storm <clears> had <throat> damaged their house, uh, ended up losing their houses to the city and and are now homeless. I can see how this can really knock out someone who
1: has little means, like no car, multiple jobs, and no time. Is yeah.
0: there is there yeah.
1: any is there anything in place to help people targeted by these complaints?
2: That's the thing. You know, the city uh, funds this codes office. They've been they've been given additional funding to hire more inspectors. Uh, and so you have this system where you're you're giving more and more money to this office that enforces these codes. You have codes that are written in a vague way, so that you know almost any property is probably has some violations. Um, some of these violations can be really expensive to remedy, as we found. Uh, and then if you're a low-income person, there's nowhere really you can turn to get these things fixed if you don't have the money to do the repairs yourself. As um, one. Uh, lawyer for the Institute for Justice, which has litigated a lot of these cases, put it to me for the article. He said, you know, this isn't a matter of people choosing to live in a house that isn't up to code. It's a matter of either living in a house that isn't up to code or being homeless uh, because they just don't have, you know, the means to, to correct these problems. Um, I can tell you when I was in environmental court, there was a guy whose case came up right before ours, apparently had a multitude of violations. And when they called his case, that the referee, the, the judge of environmental court, asked if he had taken care of all the violations, and he said he had taken care of all of them except for the peeling paint because he just didn't have the money to repaint his house after doing all the other repairs. And the referee said, well, what what do you want us to do about that? And he said, you know, maybe drop the complaint. and Everybody in the front of the courtroom, the referee, and the lawyers all laughed because they thought he was making a joke mm. and he wasn't joking. The guy wasn't laughing. you know he, this was his sort of you know home and his livelihood and you know it costs a lot of money to repaint the house uh, and he just didn't have it. and I, I thought the two reactions were pretty striking. Are you going to keep following this story? Uh, I'd like to. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't work for the scene. This is a, a freelance piece, but I, I think that I've written about municipal courts and predatory fines and fees in other cities. And I, I think this is a national problem. And it's particularly a problem in cities like Nashville that are, you know, growing at a pretty rapid pace and, and, you know, making need to confront these uh, important questions about sort of who, who gets to be part of the city going forward. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on with us and to break
1: down this very interesting story. Radley Balco is a Nashville opinion journalist for the Washington Post. His latest piece in the Nashville scene is called Code Snitching. Check it out. Radley, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get to make laughs. That's right. Today's episode is all about the comedy scene in our city. Who are some of your favorite local comedians? Where do you see stand-up comedy? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khlele Colonna, and this is Nashville.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Zanies, make some noise. How are we doing tonight?
1: Zanies out on 8th South has been a staple of the Nashville comedy scene for decades. You enter the room through a deep red curtain. Inside, it's an intimate, dimly lit space with small tables clustered around the stage. For Nashville's comics, Zanies is a lot of things. For many, it's a hub or a home base to return to after touring in other cities. For others, it's still a goal. For our guests today, it's Old Hat.
2: Please welcome to the stage, the hilarious
3: Lydia Popovich. Start clapping right now for the very funny Donnie Singstack. Please welcome to the stage, your host for the evening, Brad Sativa.
1: Come on, folks, keep clapping for the very funny Amber Autry. We've got a few of those folks here right now to talk about our local comedy scene. Amber Autry and Brad Sativa, welcome to This Is Nashville.
4: Thank you. Yeah,
1: thanks for for having us. Oh yeah, it's great. It's Friday. How y'all doing? So good. Mm-hmm.
5: The yeah, rain doing well too. Yeah, it's a uh, it's, it's a little gloomy, but I kind of like gloomy Fridays to kind of start off. Yeah, why? I don't know because because uh, I know like weekends are usually busy, and it, it kind of forces you to slow down just a little bit.
1: I like that. Okay, I'm gonna take that in now. I like to hear people's origin stories when they ha- to see how they got into comedy. Amber, what's yours?
4: Oh man, well, I I've been performing since I was little. Like I used to charge my family a quarter to watch shows in the living room okay. that I didn't pay rent for. Okay, you know? uh, and then I went to theater school, and after I graduated from there, I moved to Chicago, did Second City improv, and was like, oh, this isn't for me. Um, I graduated, went through it, but um, after I finished that, I met a guy in the subway who was. Playing a guitar like really well, and he was like I have an open mic you should come try comedy at and so I did it and it hooked me Um, So yeah, I started in Chicago From meeting a guy in the subway.
1: You got put on by a busker.
4: Yeah, yeah,
1: (laughs) that's awesome So how would you describe your style of comedy?
4: Very physical upbeat I realize after I do comedy every time that I don't work out enough, you know, because mm. I'm all over the stage. Yeah. <laughs> you got to keep
1: your wind up, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, Second City, that's famous for producing like nationally known comedians. Yet you came here.
4: Yeah. I I spent a good amount of time in Chicago. I was there for like four or five years. Um But I came to perform at Zanny's Nashville, and Lucy was like, hey, you should move here. And I was like, okay. It was during the pandemic. I was already kind of like wanting to change it up. And since I moved here, it has been so dope. I meet amazing people. Like a lot of big names come through here, and I don't think people know that about Nashville, that it's really popping as a comedy scene and getting even bigger. Uh, So I've really been enjoying it.
1: Now, Brad, how'd you get started doing comedy? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, my story a little different, <laughs>
5: <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I always, I always been into uh, like I was at raised in church, so I always used to speak at church. So I, I was never like really scared to talk in front of people. Uh, played sports, um, really loved music, sang in choirs like three choirs and in, in uh, growing up. Uh, and then once I got to high school, I kind of started focusing more on sports. And then college, it started trending more towards music, and I wrote music uh, and done music for probably 10 years. Mm. And then uh, I was working in restaurants with people, and they always would tell me that they thought I was funny. I would make pretty good tips because I would make people laugh, and all of my coworkers kind of just hyped me up, and it was like, you should try, you should try. <laughs> and so for uh, like two, three years, I, I just kept denying them and, and tell them I wouldn't do it. Um, because I respect the comedy more than I'm like, y'all know me, so y'all think I'm funny. So I, But eventually, uh, me and one of my friends, we was working together, and we decided to go, but he never showed up, and I went to the open mic. It was at the East Room uh, out on Gallatin. That was my first time I ever went up, and that was, was going on eight years ago now. So So you got
1: hung out to dry by a good friend, but you
5: found your calling. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of weird. It's uh, I always tell people, it's like, I love music, and, like, I only love my comedy, and the rest of the comedy, <laughs> I, like, I could, like, not sit in a bad way, so I'm not, I'm just not a, a huge comedy fan, and I'm not, um, like, I'm not caught up, like, with watching specials or anything. I like my people that I know and that I actually do comedy with, that's who I, like, root for and watch, so.
1: Now, working in the service industry, like, as a bartender, that's kind of a type of performance art in itself, like, what skills did you get from that that transfer over well to your comedy?
5: Uh, just kind of reading the room, reading the situations. Uh, I remember, I don't know. I remember having. I used to work in Green Hill starting out. So it used to be these like rich white women come with their kids, <laughs> and I used to get the kids on my side so early, and then so huh. they see me getting the kids on the side. I, I got the kids. I'm talking to the kids, entertaining them. And then that tip was bigger at the end of it because, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't have to do nothing but just like drink my wine and eat, and Brad had it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I started getting regulars like that. Okay. And kids started requesting me, and family started requesting me. And uh, I don't know. I just felt that, yeah, you can... Once you give somebody a good experience, they always wanna they want to come back to you, and that's kind of like the attitude I use towards comedy. It's like when you if you see me last time, I was funny. I'm gonna be funny this time too, and it's like not in the arrogant way, but just that I work hard. Mm-hmm. So, what's your style like? Uh, observational. Um, I, I do I do talk about politics a little bit, but not heavy. But more situational. My life coming to age. Uh, I got some darker comedy. Um, but yeah, it just kind of being in Nashville is for sure has inspired this and kind of seeing how things trend here has really like put me uh,
1: maybe put a perspective on how I view comedy now and Emmerich tweeted us that her favorite local comedian is Heather McMahon. Shout out. Tell us what you love about Nashville's comedy scene. Tweet us at This is Nashville. Now, Amber, you organize pop-up comedy shows. At pretty unusual venues, right?
4: Yeah, I just became a producer with Brad. Uh, we both produce Don't Tell Comedy, um, and Don't Tell is in fifty over fifty cities across the nation. Um, but I just became one this year, and it is so much fun. I get to like go around the city, scout cool locations. Like I just did one in an oddity shop, Hale in East Nashville. Okay, and it's. Weird. It's got like a lot of taxidermy and people walked in and was like, We're supposed to laugh in here, you know? Uh they were a little apprehensive, but the show went so well and it's just great because I get to show people like different places in Nashville that they wouldn't have necessarily seen before. Like a lot of people were like, Oh, I have to come back to this shop.
1: So it's like um doing a show at the set of Beetlejuice or something.
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So,
1: well, what's different about performing stand-up comedy at a yoga studio, for instance? Right? <laughs>
4: It's a lot more chill. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) No, I think like uh, I haven't done a yoga studio yet, but I'm obviously so down. But I think performing in different locations outside of a club gives you a lot of like room to play uh, with the environment and maybe create new jokes that you wouldn't have had before. Um, And it yeah, it puts everybody in a new environment that you can like connect immediately with.
1: You both are producers. I, yeah, I
5: also I would say opportunity. because uh, huh. most of the don't tells happen on the weekend, Friday and Saturday. So if you're not a comic that's uh probably like either featuring for another comic or at the club, uh it could be gaps on the weekend sometimes and uh like don't tell kind of fill in the gaps for comics that give them opportunity to stay closer to home and have a good show on a Friday or have a good show on a Saturday without having to, sometimes, like, sometimes for comics, you could drive three hours for the same amount of money. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, so, yeah, so sometimes you just get to stay
1: home and, and work in your own area is cool, too. I was about to ask if you guys paid, because I know stand-up comp- comedians where I, in my old town of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and one of my friends, she told this joke. She's like, I do my comedy for tens of dollars. And, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of people yeah, sure. do it for the love, and they don't get paid much.
5: Myself personally, sorry. Um, Go ahead. Like I've been, I've been running shows seven years here. Uh, this year, I've been taking a little more, t- like numbers wise on it. But I probably say I pay about a thousand dollars a month to a comics. So mm-hmm. uh, overall, from the various shows of producing, but so yeah, I pay comics. So <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah, I think it's so important, like. In 2019, I decided I was like, I was serving and I was like, I don't want to serve anymore. It makes me unhappy. I'm going to go like full-time comedy. And it like, my mindset shifting like that made such a big difference. And I listened to a lot of comics being like, oh, I don't deserve to ask for payment yet. And I'm like, you deserve to get paid for your art. You know, sometimes I think there's like this, like, I don't know, pride in like, oh, we you know, we don't get paid. But like, you you deserve it. You know, like. For yeah. sure, yeah. Don't be afraid to ask for payment.
1: <laughs> Comedians
5: have to eat, too. Up yeah. front, too. Up front. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes figure out, like, <laughs> yeah, find out what that budget is for you to drive to Knoxville or you go to Chattanooga, Atlanta. You know what I'm saying? Not even in a bad way, but you do want to make sure you cover your gas. You want to make sure if it is an emergency that you might have to stay somewhere. You want to make sure you have at least a little money. Because I definitely threw myself on the road. We was actually talking about it. I threw myself on the road a lot. When I first started, but that's me as a a big dude, you know what I'm saying? Like I can take a little more risk and chances than than uh, than women and other people. So,
1: right. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host Khalil LeColona. My guests are local comedians, Amber Autry and Brad Sativa. Tweet us about your favorite stand up routines at This Is Nashville. Now, you know, we heard a few minutes ago the wind up at Zaney's Night. Brad, Zaney's is something of a staple, a local staple here in Nashville, right? What does that place mean to you? Uh, it's actually, I would even say it's a
5: national staple for for comedy. Uh, it's one of the, the most vouched for like, clubs um, in the country. Comics love to perform there. Comics always come back there. That's why you see people like Chris Rock, uh, before he hit his stage and do the tambourine tour, he stopped in Zanies and do 10 shows because he know that he's going to get the type of crowd that he needs to, to build his material. Uh for me, I, I made it from from literally I got booked the first time I got booked by Zanies, uh it was by Spanky Brown, RIP to him, he's a good dude, uh, big Onk, and uh and, and in And um and when they booked me, that was my first time like literally getting booked up there, but then uh Lucy booked me the next month for a comedy competition. And then from there, I got second place in that competition. And from there, it, it like lit a fire under me in a way because I kind of had a chip on my shoulder from that point. And I, I went from hosting to featuring to headlining. And like, so my pitch on the wall up there and to be up there with a lot of greats is, is great.
1: What so. about open mic nights? Are there plenty of those in town? Oh, yeah. It's it's a, it's a good amount uh, of open
5: mics. Uh, definitely it's rebounding people. Uh, from prior to the, the pandemic, because uh, venues themselves, uh, but yeah, we usually have around maybe two a week from like uh, from Monday through Thursday, uh, and that's kind of like the goal. To at least try to give people two opportunities to, uh, to do mics, um, and I try to go myself. And it's a, it's, a, it's the scene actually least gained about 33% more people during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been more people, I guess they was stuck up in the house and they was like, I'm trying my dreams of comedy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And yeah, it's uh like, and it's good to see some of them people actually figuring it out. And that's kind of the cool part. When you've seen somebody first start, uh, especially a person like me, I guess I'm one of the old heads now. And uh, to see people first start and you see where they take it to is, is, is amazing. Like uh, like even last week, earlier this week, one of my friends, Laura Peak. Uh, who started Born and Raised in Nashville. Uh, she just got Just for last one of the biggest comedy festivals, and shes I've seen her. I booked her for our second show she ever been booked for. Mm-hmm. And we produce well over probably 100 shows together. And you know what I'm saying? And just to see her grow as a comedy, that's what I feel good about,
1: seeing my friends grow. Now, Amber, when you have a show for Don't Tell Comedy, are you adjusting your material based on the location of the event?
4: Yeah, definitely. I... um that's kind of how I, I love to host. I usually host those shows, and that's how I go into hosting. I'm like taking in the, the room and the people and being like, what can I like break the ice with environment-wise? And that usually is a good pop. That's usually hits. Have, yeah.
1: you, have, you, have you ever walked into a venue and had to completely change your set because of the vibe? Because, you know, audience is very important.
4: Definitely. Well, I just performed for a nursing home, um, okay. Definitely had to switch it up. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of things were relatable to them. Um, so yeah, I definitely walked into challenging situations and have to be like, all right, how can I, <laughs> how can I pull through? But I always do, which is dope. I, it's opportunities for me to be like, I got this.
1: How did you switch it up for the nursing home folks?
4: It was a lot of crowd work and they didn't want crowd work. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I brought like five other comedians with me and we were all kind of like, we had never performed in a nursing home before. Um, they're very honest, mm-hmm. that audience, you know, if they like something, they laugh loud. If they didn't, they were like, next joke. Yeah. We were like, all right.
1: I'll <laughs> <laughs> let you know. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, what, what do you wish that the comedy scene here in Nashville had more of?
4: Mm, that's a good question. Uh, I love this comedy scene so much. I think everybody's so supportive. Um, What I think there's a good amount of, and I'm excited to see grow, is uh, more, like, I would love another club. That would be cool. Zany's is awesome, but I feel like, you know, a lot of people are vying to get in there. Um, So it'd be great to have another club. And more women doing things. I think this scene Mm -hmm. is like has a lot of that. Like, Lucy at Zany's, is amazing. Kaylee at Dewey Comedy, she runs, like, the majority of of local shows, um, and I just want to see, like, more women get shows and opportunities.
1: So, you know, you've traveled and performed. What makes Nashville's comedy seem different from big markets like New York and L.A., and even mid-sized ones like Denver?
4: Yeah. Um, you know, I... Nashville, for me, I've never seen a comedy community the comics be so supportive like everybody's genuinely genuinely happy for everyone else um and as far as like the audiences i love southern audiences like a lot of people will be like when i moved from chicago they were like how are you going to tell your jokes down there but honestly they hit even harder like i feel like Southern audiences are ready to party, you know? (laughs) (laughs) They're like, say whatever, let's go.
1: (laughs) Definitely ready to party down on Broadway.
4: (laughs) Oh, man, that's a different beast. (laughs) I I can't do Broadway. (laughs) No? No. Oh, man, I don't drink that much. So I, I went down there sober recently, and I was like, it was like the upside down, man. It was was scary down there.
1: (laughs) Stranger Things and Bridesmaids.
4: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Amber Autry is a stand-up comedian and producer of the pop-up shows Don't Tell Comedy. She was cool enough to join us today. Amber, thanks for being on the show.
4: Thanks so much for having me, Khalil.
1: Comedian Brian Sativa will stay with us through, Brad Sativa, pardon me, sorry, man, will stay with us through the break. When we come back, we'll invite a few more local comedians into the conversation and find out more about what it's like to perform the craft here in Music City. Do you think you're funny? Go ahead, tell us your best joke. Maybe we'll read it in front of our guests. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Comedians have the life, right? First of all, they're funny. They work late nights at cool venues, and they have a keen insights into life and society. Sounds great to me. But what is it like to work and survive doing stand-up in our city? I'd like to welcome my next guests, Nashville comedians Lydia Popovich and Donnie Singstack. Lydia Donnie, welcome to This is Nashville.
0: Hi, thanks for having us.
1: Yes, thank you so much for having us on. This is really great. Um, So Lydia, tell me, how did you get started doing comedy?
0: It's very funny. I mean, you talk to most, comedies and there, or most comedians, and there's always a story. I mean, I started it in a very classic way, which is I had a terrible breakup. I okay. had a terrible breakup. I was in a very bad place. And a friend of mine was always trying to get me to go and do a, an open mic and always told me I was funny. But I was like, you know, I don't know if this is going to be really a thing I want to do. So it took me being in the worst place of my life and being like, yeah, I'm going to do this as like an act of sabotage. Like, let me go. I want to feel terrible. Okay. I want to sit in this. Let's go really feel terrible. And it backfired. I went I was terrified, but it was one of the most exhilarating experiences of my life. I just stumbled through that five minutes, and the whole time I just was like, this feels incredible. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, this is great. And as soon as it was done, I wanted to do it again immediately. And I literally kept doing it. And now it's been almost 12 years.
1: (laughs) That's beautiful. Now, tell me, what's your comedic style?
0: You know, that's always such a subjective question, right? And I think it's because a lot of people don't have an understanding of what it means. So I just like to tell what the experience is like with me. Okay. You know, I'm very much a comedic storyteller. I talk about the absurd things that I see in my life and I try to frame them in situations where they are appealing to everyone in the room. So I talk a lot about the things that influence me and excite me and intrigue me. I... I'm a very confident woman. I love to talk to women about being confident. I love to talk to women about the power that we hold. And I like to do it in a way that's approachable to men. Mm. So you've got men and women in a room both understanding and realizing that, like, we as women have maybe a little bit more power than we give ourselves credit for. So that's kind of the moral of my story. I always like women feeling like super empowered when they leave that room, that they know that they are an amazing person and they are contributing to society and that the world would collapse without us is very important. It it truly would. So people leave your sets feeling the happy vibes. 100%. That is always the goal.
1: Now, Donnie, what was your entry into stand-up?
3: I started very young. I was one of those kids who just always knew that they wanted to do it, even from a very young age, like elementary school I knew I wanted to do it, middle school I started writing my own jokes, and then I graduated high school and the week after I did my first ever uh, open mic Mm -hmm. in Washington D.C. and then just never stopped. I for that. And it's been almost nine years. N- n- I know it's been over nine years now since since that first open mic.
1: It takes a lot of guts. You graduate high school and you automatically walk into the
3: club. Yeah, it was, my parents finally allowed me to do it, (laughs) 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 because uh, I grew up pretty far outside D.C., so I had to drive 30 minutes to get to the furthest away metro stop, then take the metro, and then I didn't end up going on until the very last comic of the first open mic I did, so... The metro closed down, and my dad had to drive like an hour and a half to come pick me up. He's like, are you sure you want to do this? So, <laughs> it was awesome. I had I had so much fun. The second time is when you bomb. I, I, had, a, I had a good first open mic, the second one. The second when I bomb pretty hard as you lose that first set, Sympathy. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Now, tell me, how would you describe your comedic style? Well, I, <laughs> I do have a stutter when, 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 when I talk. I'm not sure <laughs> How good these mics are at picking that up, but uh, yeah, I've got a stutter when I talk, so, so I like to talk a lot about observations of like just living day to day life, having a stutter, and what's you, you know what, what's funny about it, what people might might not realize about it, and just where j- just kind of talking people through, through it who, who might not know. What, what What we actually go through. Yeah. I know.
1: You know you so you're talking about using humor as a defense mechanism. Do you you find like a lot of your peers have developed the comedic sense or a comedic sense for similar reasons?
3: I, I think so. I think I know Everyone who grew, grew up like 90% of the comedians you talked to were not popular in high school, <laughs> so okay. everyone kind of had to make everyone laugh and just get, get, find their way in the world somehow, find their way to get attention or laughs or something, and I was always different, but then I, I, I found if, yeah, I know, I could make fun of myself a l- l- little bit, people were more understanding, and easier on me, and eventually it turned into a career. (laughs) Lydia, were you popular in high school?
0: I I was. I actually was very popular in high school. I got (laughs) a a lot of people. You probably told people you were
1: popular.
0: I I did. I was like, hi, guys. I'm incredible. Um, I'm here to make your lunchtime this much more fun. I I, I was. I was popular in high school, but I was also kind of mean. I mean, I'm definitely... um, I like to say it how it is, and and I'm not afraid to to do a little ribbing. So certainly it took me a minute to kind of realize that some of that ribbing isn't always appreciated. So I've certainly focused sort of like lightweight bully energy uh, into a more positive place.
1: (laughs) Okay, I love that. You know, so let's let's take that. Let's talk about what folks find funny here in Nashville. How do you tailor your material? To your audience. You know
0: what? I really have enjoyed. I mean, I, I was listening and heard what Amber was saying. And I tend to agree. When I moved from Los Angeles here two years ago, uh, people were like, well, are you concerned that they're not going to like your jokes? Are you worried that, you know, you talk about a lot of progressive things? Like, how is that going to go? And honestly, I haven't had to change anything. If anything, I've just leaned in harder on what I'm doing, and it has been really widely received. I mean, unfortunately, there's not as many female comics here as there are male comics, Um, but there are a lot of women that are out there and that are doing comedy, so it's been fun to be the woman who's on the stage and then sharing stuff out there and getting more women on stage because it's like, oh, wow, crowds are responding to this. Women do make people laugh, everyone in the room, very capable of making everyone in the room laugh, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, Donnie, how about you?
3: Yeah, I moved here from New York City and found something very similar where I I didn't have to change my jokes basically at all to to perform here in Nashville and get laughs from crowds. But I think there is something unique about this city where depending on the venue you're performing at, you're not performing to people from Nashville. You, you know, a lot of Absolutely. the times you are performing at the comedy club, and there's people from all over who who, who are visiting. You, you know, there's the city is filled with pe- people who are visiting into Horace, and they come to to comedy shows a lot of the times to be entertained. And then there's other nights where you perform to locals, and sometimes yeah. I know in other cities, if you do a local joke at the club, it does really well because all the people who are there to see you are from that city and live in it every day. Whereas if you go somewhere like Zanies or if you try try and do do comedy downtown, nobody who is in the audience is from here. So you just have to be universally relatable and can't make a joke about the story. Statues that are naked on DeMondrean. Yeah, I know because nobody's going to know what that is.
1: Local comedian Brad Sativa is still with us. You're from Tennessee, and you've been here since college. What's unique about the Nashville scene to you? Uh,
5: Well, yeah. Yeah, it's grown uh, and definitely grown. It's changed uh, in dynamics a lot, uh, especially here recently. Uh, I'm also one of the same people who welcome more women. Uh, I also specifically say black women, we need more of. So if you're a black woman listening out there, thinking about it, uh, <laughs> definitely come out. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just think that now we can we able to offer people more out of Nashville than just uh, eight white guys going up. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's important one black dude and one woman you know what i'm saying it's like because it's, there's more funny women than one woman there's more funnier black dudes in Malin. i mean not I mean not Malin, but uh nashville than just one and uh i think we got the opportunity that's what i want us to be able to do is to see us to grow and see other people uh, that's not just straight white dudes to actually get success in this town and to be able to start giving back to other people from their groups and to, to kind of start building the network. That's kind of where I've seen the most kind of happening and where it's trending towards. And I want to see that have see us have more
1: opportunities to do that. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host Khalil Lake-Alona. This hour is all about Nashville's comedy scene. Our guests are comedians Linda P- Lydia Popovich, Brad Sativa. And Donnie Singstack. So, all right, this morning I filled my gas tank, so, yes, I'm in the need of a good laugh. (laughs) I want to hear some riffing. Can you all share a few gems from your sets? You guys down for that? Uh, Sure. Yeah. Okay. Donnie, give us a taste.
3: On the spot. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So, so, so. I've got a stutter. What? What? And I talk, obviously, in a... I also work here in Nashville, too, which is nice, because I have like my first grown adult job, mm-hmm. and the hardest part of getting that for me is going through the job interview process, because I don't know when to bring up the fact that I have a stutter, right? Like, I don't put it on my resume, and I'll be honest, I don't think they find out in the Zoom interview, either. <laughs> it's like, wow, his internet's awful. Let's, <laughs> let's get him in here, you know? I, guess what? I buffer in person, too. <laughs> And they That's ask you, great. you know, what what, what would you, you you eventually get in person? They find out. and They say, what would you say is your biggest weakness? Like you don't already know. Do you, know? You, you really want me to look you in the eyes and say, well, w- well, some people would say I'm almost too punctual. <laughs> That's not it. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> nice.
5: Brett. Well, uh. If y'all want to hear a real riff, you're going to have to come to the show. But right before we came in, they had a segment talking about uh, white people gentrifying black neighborhoods and snitching on them for code violations, which you can't snitch on nobody that had that Chevy broke down there for 10 years. That Chevy been there a decade. You been there for six months. Quit snitching on them. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, Uncle Cecil don't don't mow the yard every week. It's all right, and his dog is mean. But leave him alone. That man been in Jefferson Street for 30-plus years. Like, so white people quit moving to the neighborhood snitching. Don't do that. We're going to beat you up. I, I'm a volunteer. We're going to start a squad, uh, no snitch, no, no snitch squad, going to every gentrification <laughs> neighborhood. And we're going to really show them if that's what they really mean. We will drop cars off in your neighborhood. We will drop, drop cars off in the middle of the gulch if y'all keep playing with us. So quit snitching.
1: <laughs> I can see it now. A ton of cars on cinder blocks all up certain parts of the gulch. Uh, oh, German absolutely.
0: <laughs> no, we are talking, we are like, you don't know that that's not a rental property? That is an income property. That, jeven, that revenue generator, you know what yeah. I mean? You can have a little bit of extra there. You don't know what they're doing with that. <laughs> yeah, it's got <laughs> a, a, a Cadillac converter pockets? on there.
5: You said, they got a Cadillac converter on there. You better leave it alone. Leave them people alone. Quit snitching. <laughs>
0: those big bench seats, th- those are better than a lot of couches in people's homes, you know?
5: I've been in white people's homes. They use them as couches now. <laughs> <laughs> like,
0: so, like, you seen TikTok? Look. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. So I, I like to, Like I said, I like to speak to women. Uh, and, you know, you can't see me, but I'm I'm a large woman. I'm, I'm a fat woman. I openly say that I'm a fat woman. I'm very comfortable with my size. I love who I am because I've never been a thin woman. That's just not I've never been a thin person my whole life. I've been fat. So it, it startles people sometimes when they know that I'm so confident. So I like to tell them, like, I would never want to be thin because it seems cold. I, I, I see thin people and they're freezing constantly you know they've got jackets half on half off they can't decide you know what side of the street they're on and the reality is this is that you know women are obsessed with being thin because they think that that's the only way that they're gonna be found attractive by men and that's a lie because I get hit on all of the time. I mean, here in the South is the best place to be a big girl. I can't be in Kroger for more than five minutes by myself before some gentleman comes up to me and asks me for a recipe for potato salad. You know? <laughs> I like to give them really crappy recipes. I tell them to put you know, Sour Patch Kids in it. It's just like pickles, because you know? I know that they have zero interest in that actual recipe. What they're interested in is all the gravy, which is me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is the South. We do put it on everything. You know? And the other thing is that men like to pretend that they have standards. But they don't have standards because here's the situation. As soon as a man leaves his home, he is looking for a new one. That mom kicks him out and he just needs a home. He needs a place to be. So ladies, just have a warm plate of food. Have a nice warm couch. And get yourself a man. It's very easy.
1: <laughs> oh, I love it.
5: I concur. To it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if that recipe book's strong, we we in there. We can negotiate. Exactly. We, can, we can make it through.
0: There's something special about being seen by a man and knowing he's thinking, "Ooh, she looks like she knows how to cook." You know, that's what they say when they see me, and I'm like, "Yes, come over. I'll f- keep you fed and warm."
5: I, I fully support that. <laughs> and speaking of that, you did. I seen them wings you had on Instagram oh, man. yesterday. I, yes, <laughs> yes. not like it for real. That kind of
0: it is not a game at my house. Yeah, I bought a smoker recently, and I have been. Um, just smoking up a storm. I've been perfecting my wings, and I, I am very proud to say that I make fantastic smoked wings. I mean, what kind of wings are you talking about? you available Saturday night? I mean, all, I've, been, I've been making wings once a week. This past week, I made um, basically a soy mirin glazed wing. I have a Cajun wing down great. I've got a lemon pepper wing down perfect. And then I am working on a dry ranch rub right now that's almost there. Almost there.
5: Okay. Okay, I'm going to start booking her every week on that day just to get a (laughs) plate.
4: I'm going to show up with the plate, Brad. Is that
5: that wing Wednesday?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know... I've been around some stand-up comedy scenes in the many different cities I've lived in, and sometimes it can seem pretty cutthroat and clicky, but that's not what I'm sensing here. Like, you all obviously know each other and have worked together, and as before the show started, as you all were showing up, you're giving each other hugs and high fives and just really excited to be with each other. You know, talk to me about that sense of support that's here. In the Nashville comedy scene. Lydia.
0: I mean, honestly, that was one of the most unique things that I found when I moved here. Comedy can be insular and comedy can be very clicky, especially in big cities like Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco, where I started, where you've got so many people trying to vie for the stage time. And it's such a misconception to think that. You need to be in competition. Like we are all building and growing a craft. So we should work together. And when I moved here to Nashville, I was kind of nervous and anticipating some of that like evaluative time, right? Where people are like trying to figure out where you fit in their scene. Should they talk to you? Should you not? And it was the exact opposite. Every single person I met was just like, oh, hi, did you just move here? Oh, that's incredible. Oh, wow. Blah, blah, blah. And people started seeing me like, oh, you're so funny. And oh, I saw you on Instagram. And I literally have not met. A, an unkind person yet In most scenarios i felt like the unkind person because i'm so used to just being in a big city where you just keep to yourself and then i'm like oh wow i'm just being quiet and people are gonna think i don't like them like i have to remind myself to like be a little bit more extroverted here because i want to be contributing to the scene i want people to be in a good mood and be happy and supporting each other i think that y- there needs to be a balance between people supporting each other and people challenging each other but it doesn't need to be um at the detriment of kind of love and support, right? Like, mm, there's. would you rather go to work where you hate everyone or would you rather go to work where you love everyone? And it's very much that way with comedy. Like, we can't escape each other. We we see each other, like, multiple days of the same week. So, like, if you don't like someone or if you have a funky attitude, you're not going to have a good time doing comedy. Well,
3: if <laughs> not
1: you br- in Nashville. If you bring those wings to, to the job, everybody Right, you. exactly. <laughs>
3: Donnie, how do you feel? Yeah, I love it here. I actually came and visited quite a bit before I moved here full-time, because my parents moved here. I think my mom listens to the show or the station, at least, so if you are listening now, shout out, mom. Uh, And, uh, hey, I've been here for a while, so I always came over holidays, whether it was Thanksgiving or Christmas, and I would reach out and say, hey, uh, and I do do comedy when, when, when I'm home for Christmas, and that's I already met Brad. And uh, so, so I've known Brad for like five years. And I would get booked at Zaney's A- and all the other lo- 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 local shows in town for uh, that week after Christmas. And then I found everyone was super nice and it made it really e- easy to move here and make the tra- 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 transition because I already knew everyone and I already knew I liked everyone. Mm-hmm. Now, Donnie, now, oh, sorry, Brad. Anybody
1: out there, somebody who thinks they're funny, they think they got the goods, what suggestions do you have for those who want to get started? Uh, I would just tell them to definitely write,
5: um, look at the climate of where comedy is trending towards. Uh, so if your favorite comic is Andrew Dice Clay, you might. Want to reevaluate what's going on, like in, <laughs>
1: you, in the world right now? You pulled that out the box, right
5: there. But I'm just saying, but I've, that's how you gotta kind of tell. Like, it's a different world now. It's, it's different from even when I started comedy, and it, it's, it's ever changing. So, if so, that'd be the first thing. Make sure you're not gonna offend everyone that that's gonna come to the show. That's first, like come to the open mic. So make sure you you actually run that material by somebody that got a logical mind. Uh, that can at least give you some pointers because you can burn bridges real quick saying the wrong words and wrong insinuating wrong things, and uh, talking about the wrong topics and not being developed enough to talk about those topics. So that's the one thing I would say: don't keep it close to your vest first. Talk about yourself, talk about your life before you start taking on the the big elephant. You know, what I'm saying? eat an elephant one piece at a time, and that's how I would tell people to handle. Like comedy. Don't 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 feel like you have to do your special and your first time going
1: up. Talk about yourself. Heard it from the pros. That is Brad Sativa. I want to thank him. I want to thank Lydia Popovich and Donnie Singstack for being with us today. Thank you all so much. And thanks for the laughs. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thank you so much. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Monday, we'll explore the viability of independent bookstores in Nashville. Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anne Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Schernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are L'Aranj and Amir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. And yes, we still are waiting to hear your best jokes. This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you on Monday, everybody and be good to each other.